Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. My name is Colby Sinusel, and I'm the Equity Research Analyst at Cowan, covering communications infrastructure and telecom services. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Stoops, who's the CEO of SBA, joining us as part of our Leaders, Legends, Luminaries, and Visionaries podcast series. Uh, first off, Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here, Colby. Good to see you. Um, I wanted to start off going through some of your, your history to get a better sense of, of who you are and, and how you got to where you are. So. You grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and attended the University of Delaware for two years, where you've said you majored in having a really good time before taking a bit of time off and then transferring to Florida State University to pursue a degree in political science with the intention to ultimately attain a law degree. I guess just to start, what, what, did you, what made you decide to focus on a law degree? Growing up, I had, I grew up in a long, line of tradesmen and and folks who worked with their hands. Uh, my father was an engineer. So as I was kind of growing up in that era, so that let's see, that'd be the you know the 60s and the and the mid-70s, um, there was a general kind of push, uh, at least in my family, to be uh, more of a professional. And, and, and in those cases, they looked at that as like doctors, lawyers, dentists, things like that. So I blew my chance to be a doctor by majoring um, <laughs> and having a good time at the University of Delaware. So, and I do have a lot of respect for doctors today because they actually have to get it right from the start. Um, and then when I transferred down to FSU, I was intrigued by what other options I had. But to be very honest with you, at that point in life, what was I, 21 or so, while law seemed to be a good idea, the fact of staying in school for another three years uh, was also appealing. Um, but as it turned out, I, I really enjoyed law school. I, I looked at it from the start to not be a trial lawyer, but to be more of a transactional lawyer, a, a, a business lawyer. And um, I have to say that I could not be doing, you know, what I'm doing today if I had not had that background. So it all, it all kind of turned out. It's interesting. It's, um, I'm in the process right now of, of interviewing for a new associate. Yeah. And I'm interviewing these kids that are 22, 23. And some of them have known they wanted to be in, in equity research, or at least in finance, uh, since they were in high school. Uh, and they all have these really interesting stories behind them, at least, or, or they're just lying to me. Uh, and I just haven't been able to figure it out. But what's interesting is so many people, when I, when I do these interviews now and speak to people like yourselves, you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. You, you had some idea and, and really it just works out uh, in the end and you kind of make something of it. I'd be surprised if a 20, 22 year old, you know, man or woman really truly has known what they've wanted to do, you know, for, for three or four years. That's, that's a, uh, that's a talent that was well beyond me at that age. Certainly myself as well. So recognizing that you didn't go to an, I, an Ivy League school, uh, and I didn't either, just for the record. Uh, I'm curious when you're hiring someone, how much weight you put on the school 
that someone graduated from? We put, we put some. I mean, you know, Ivy League schools have a certain amount of base, you know, requirements just to get in there. But what I really put more weight on is the, the path of school, how they could, you know, how they might have um, handled themselves uh, in challenging situations. You know, if people really kind of struggled, not struggled so much as really worked hard to get to where they are and have they overcome some, some adversities in life. But, you know, getting into an Ivy League school, that definitely is um, overcoming a challenge because not everyone is able to do that. But it's not, I look for much more than that. I look for folks that are, you know, hungry and want to work and want to want to take wherever they are today and, and be more than that in the future. It's, it's such a great word use, which is hungry. Um, my, my view has always been that you have to have some certain level of intelligence in, 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 in education, but really what separates people is their desire. Yes. Uh, and and, and your, your, what, what motivates that could be different for everybody. Uh, it could be because that's what your parents did and you just want to make them proud and do the same thing. It might be because you just want to make money uh, it might be for, for other reasons, but you need to, I, I'm always looking for, is the desire there? Is the passion there? What's going to push them to go that extra mile? And it sounds like you look for the same thing. Oh, absolutely. You, you got to have, you got to have a certain element of desire, hunger, and street sensibility, uh, regardless of what school you came from. Um, when you are interviewing someone, particularly someone who is earlier than in their career, what are those key things that you're looking for? I mean, how, how can you, how do you ask the question? How do you pick up that they have that hunger or other aspects? Well, you can, I mean, there are certain things in, in um, the resume that, that you can look at. I mean, one of the things, and this is, I'm a bit biased because I had twin boys that played college baseball. Anybody who played sports in college has overcome tremendous challenge. So that those folks were always attracted to folks who have served in the military, uh, folks who have proven that they can succeed in team settings, and um, just by mere definition of being in the military or or a, or a college or a pro athlete, you're you're facing challenges every day, and you also know how to deal with. Um, defeat because not everyone wins every day um, and and to those are all great um, career you know molding uh, places that, that we look at but in the interview you know I would try my best to ferret out what experiences in life have shaped the particular candidates desires and motivations and I mean are they there because they really want it and they're hungry for something or are they just you know passing time. Yep, it's a good point. And, and I, I, I sometimes ask that too. I, I sometimes say you could be interviewing at a, you know, JP Morgan versus a, a Cowan. Uh, you know, why, why would you want this job potentially versus that? Or, you know, if you got an opportunity to go on the buy side versus the sell side, you know, would you actually interview for that? And, and what's your desire to do something like that? Because you're trying to get a sense of how much do they want this job right. versus any a, job. A, exactly. Just because they think they need a job. Right. 
Um, I read somewhere you had your first job at 12. And at one point you did door-to-door -door sales for Fuller Brush selling household cleaning items. I don't know who Fuller Brush is, admittedly. Yeah, you're too young and for it that. Seems Hopefully some of your listeners will remember Fuller Brush. Yeah. Uh, well, it seems to suggest a, a pretty strong work ethic. Where do you think that that comes from for, for you? Well, I grew up in a, in a solidly middle-class home. My parents provided what we needed for us, but there were not a lot of extras and additional things. And I like, I learned early on that I like nice things and would like to have nice things. And there was no way for me to get any of that stuff except to go out and get a job and, and work for it. So I think my first job was working at a grocery store kind of as a bagger, which I don't think you can do today at 12 years old, but you could back then. Um, and then Fuller Brush uh, was quite an experience. I, I realized that I was not cut out for, for sales, particularly door-to-door -door sales. Although I, I will tell you, Fuller Brush had some of the greatest products. Uh, ask your mom and dad about Fuller Brush. They'll, they'll, remember, okay. they'll remember it fondly. And then I moved into, you know, some different, th I did construction, I worked retail, I, I've done a lot of, I, did, I probably had 10 different jobs by the time I was 22. Um, <laughs> and there were some things that told me, you know, what I was well suited at and what I wasn't well suited at. And one of the reasons that um, I did choose law is it was very clear that I was not well suited to, uh, to work in the construction industry. So uh, that, that was a bit of a, uh, um, helped me steer things there. But, you know, where does all that come from? I, I had, I wanted to go out and have some things that I wasn't able to, my parents weren't able or, you know, not, frankly, they would have been willing, but they weren't simply able to provide like my own car when I was 16. Can you teach that? Or is this just kind of a function of one's background? And you don't necessarily have to come from, you know, your background to, to have that. You could have had a very you could have grown up in a financially affluent background and I've seen people that have just as much desire as those that, that haven't, but can you teach it? Or is it really just a function of how someone was brought up in their own situational background? I think it's at least 50% um, genetic. You got to have a certain drive and, and whether, like you say, you're brought up in a, in a middle-class background or a, or a very well-to-do background, it's not, there's plenty of those folks who want to compete and have the desire to be the best at what they're they're doing. So I think it's hard to teach, frankly. I think, and that's why the important, that's why the recruiting process is so important. And over the years, we have learned just how important the recruit, I mean, the, the success or failure of our organization and our employees is really 90% dictated by, do we hire the right people? So I, I, you know, after talking that through with you, I'd have to say it's more, it's more uh, genetic than it is learned. Yeah, no, and I think that that's too, true too. I mentioned that we're going through a, a hiring process right now. And, you know, if we find the wrong person, they leave after six months or they leave even after a year, it just it just wasted a year uh, of of our time and 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 ultimately we're having to do it all over again. So, trying to find somebody who's the right person that's going to stick with it, that's going to stay with us for a long period of time and be successful, 
so much of it starts just obviously with making sure we get the right candidate in the door. Absolutely. So after graduating from, from Florida State with a law degree in 1984, you go to work for the law firm uh, Gunster in West Palm Beach, where you ultimately become a general partner, uh, focusing on corporate securities and M&A. Um, we'll talk about your chance encounter with Steve Bernstein uh, that ultimately brings you to SBA. But before we do that, when did you start to realize you wanted to move into the corporate world and, and out of the law, uh, the law world, if you will? You know, I really enjoyed the practice of law. Uh, and I really enjoyed the camaraderie and the collegiality we had at the firm. And some of those folks, you know, have always impressed me as the smartest folks that, you know, I've ever had the pleasure of being around. And I've now had a chance to be around a lot of folks. Um, but in a Florida corporate practice, unlike, you know, Wall Street corporate practice, it's, it's quite varied. Uh, so we had all kinds of different um, uh, clients and different types of businesses and different types of tasks. And through all that, I, you know, I got to see a great variety and, and I actually must have shown an aptitude to my clients to be more than a lawyer because I kept getting brought into much broader, deeper general business strategy conversations. And I found that I really enjoyed it. Um, and the thing that I think has allowed me to make the transition from law to business well, as I've always had, and maybe it goes back to jumping into things like fuller brush sales and construction, and I've always had an appetite for for risk. Um, and you have, you, you really have to do that and be able to do that, particularly coming from a legal career where for the most part, you're trained to avoid and eliminate risk. Um, to a business background where you have to embrace it to some degree if, if you ever, you know, truly hope to succeed. So I think there was just a part of my makeup there about appetite and, and comfort in taking risks. Uh, a lot of people thought I was crazy, frankly, to leave a, uh, leave a partnership, a full partnership at, at the law firm to join um, a company that you know did things that nobody really had heard much about or knew much of, um, but it's all turned out okay. So, so let's talk about that. So, I, I mentioned a chance encounter with Steve Bernstein, which is the SBA. So, it was, it was Stephen Bernstein Associates right. before you guys shortened. Um, you know, he's still also, by the way, the, the chairman of SBA. How did you meet him? What's what's the story there? It's a story. It's a good story that I've actually gone back to the law firm and told, um, uh, you know, in some uh, large group gatherings, they've had me back. Um, I literally was sitting at my desk eating lunch when a call came in from one of my litigation colleagues whose brother-in-law was the CFO of SBA at the time. And he got a call saying, hey, do you guys do corporate work and you know we've gotten this offer uh, from what at the time was what today is all the rage a SPAC back then we called them blind blind public shells um, and this fellow had offered Steve to uh, merge his blind public shell with SBA and wow. give Steve this or that so Steve needed a corporate work and um, just through the relationship with the CFO and the brother-in-law who was uh, in the litigation group at Gunster, I got a call. 
I would not have got that call if my senior partner who was running the corporate department at the time was sitting at his desk, but he was out to lunch. I was, I was there working through lunch and uh, there you go. That was one of the, you know, the, the twists of fate that have put me in the seat that I'm in today. So Steve and I developed this great relationship. I helped him see that what he was being offered wasn't all that great. I mean, Steve was a subchapter S guy. He didn't understand multiples. He thought his business was only worth what was in the bank account. Um, so, and, and it's not that that was any sheer genius on my part. I mean, any, any good, you know, corporate securities person would have been able to help Steve along, but we developed this great relationship. I steered him away from that, which he was thankful for, and then really got to become his thought part partner, even though I was still at the law firm, his thought partner in where to take um, SBA. And it just so happened that this was the same year of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which changed forever, you know, the way the duopoly wireless carriers thought about their infrastructure and, and sharing and things like that. So chance meeting with Steve, chance time in, in history, felt things were good at SBA. It was interesting because I had hooked up SBA with an accounting firm and investment bankers, and they were gonna raise money that Steve had owned 100% of the time. And every one of these folks that I um, respected Arthur Anderson, they were the best, best uh, office in town. Um, you know, Alex Brown led our uh, uh, private placement. All these people came back and raved about SBA, about how clean it was, how well the business was run, how good, you know, for a private company the systems were. So a lot of um, signals were all flashing green to me. And then when Steve said, look, we're about ready to close, but I really want you to come inside the company, leave Gunster, be my general counsel. But what I really want you to do is lead the company into our new area of focus, which is owning wireless infrastructure. Because prior to that time, the company did not own any wireless infrastructure. They were services firm. So, what a, what a great story. Uh, yeah, and, but, and, and that again gets back to a, a bit of the risk tolerance. And I had four kids at the time under six years old. My wife was like, well, gee, are you going to get health insurance? Because that's pretty important. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so so it all kind of turned out, but it's not it's not something that everyone would have jumped at in my position. But I'm sure glad that I did. You know, it's there's a few things there. I mean, number one is again, so many of these stories as I do more of these types of interviews, there's a, there's some element of luck, Absolutely. having to be at the right place at the right time. Absolutely. Uh, but then, but then A, having the willingness to, to take that opportunity, in this case, there was some risk. Uh, you know, having four kids under six, like you said, I mean, that's, that's actually a pretty big deal. Because um, I find that as I get older, my, my own risk tolerance has gone down quite a bit, uh, yeah. to be candid with you. Yeah. And not only that, you also have a, a supporting wife who is, who is actually, you know, comfortable with you doing that as well. Because I also know of situations where if, if both people in that family, the adults aren't on board, uh, that could create a whole level of stress in the background that could prevent that person from, from being as good as they hope to be. Um, so I think that that's a big part of it as well as having that, that support actually. 
Um, and then it really it's about just taking advantage of that opportunity, being as good as you hope you are and, and, and seeing what happens. And, and obviously you have that occur for you. Uh, everything you said is absolutely right. And I often introduce myself to folks who have no idea of my background that I'm one of the luckiest folks in the world. Um, so after 13 years at Gunster, you leave in 1997 to join SBA, as you mentioned, as general counsel. Today, the tower industry is, is well established in the US, but how would you describe the tower industry at the time you joined SBA? It was um, undefined. It was fragmented. Um, there was a company called Telecom Tower, which was probably a, one of the first true independent tower companies but their business was a lot of paging and um, other services because you still had yet to see the wireless carriers embrace sharing and co-location on other people's architecture. So Crown, American, and SBA all kind of got their start at the same time, but from three entirely different uh, origins. You know, American was a spinoff of American radio. And that shaped early thinking around in the investment community because it was picked up by radio analysts, broadcast analysts. And then, you know, it's obviously an extremely different business, but that's who started following um, uh, the industry because of just Steve Dodge and the fact that they had grown to know him. So they were going to pick up American Tower. Crown was a bunch of real estate developers. And SBA, we were actually doing all the, the tower work, but we just had never taken the, the forward step of capitalizing companies so that we could actually own and operate the infrastructure ourselves. But prior to, I mean, and this was all around 97, there really couldn't have been a tower industry prior to that. And it really, I do believe, was a result, as a result of the Telecommunications Act of uh, 1996, which of course spawned Sprint and what's now T-Mobile, and basically got the other two, the duopoly, thinking that, well, they're going to need to use their money for a lot more things than um, owning infrastructure. Wow. It's a, what, a, what an exciting time that must have been. Um, so in 2000, so three years after joining the company, you're promoted to CFO. Um, I guess just first off, was that a difficult transition from GC to, to CFO? It didn't seem like it at the time, but now that I look back on it, I'm like, oh my gosh, what, <laughs> what were people thinking to let me be the CFO? But no, I had always been um, very involved with the numbers. Um, very detailed, very, very quantitative in my approach to things. And, you know, I had done a lot of... Um, securities work and IPO work. Um, and, and it was really, had we not been going public, I probably would not have made that transition, but I was thought to be a good front person along with Steve to go out and basically be the road show. And I wasn't going to be able to sit at that table if I was a general counsel. So I okay. became, I became the CFO and made sure that we had, you know, all the folks around me who could read Gap and understand Gap and, and all that good stuff 
but I always did have a fairly good sense for the flow of money and the things that create value and, you know, how much debt to add and what kinds of debt, those, those things. And I said early on in our conversation about how well law school uh, prepared me for what I'm doing today. And it's, you know, it's a lot of those things. Um, it's funny, you're, you mentioned how we, you know, on the investment side, only really interact with the CEO and, and, and CFO. In, in this case, it's, it's you and Brendan and obviously Mark uh, on the IR side. Um, but it, it is interesting because there's obviously this great group of people in these organizations, but at yes. least in terms of who we typically interact with, it's a very small group. And, you know, if they want you to be that guy, then you need to have that title. Um, and then in 2002, you're promoted to CEO. You've now been in that position for nearly 20 years. Um, you know, to be honest with you, when I was thinking about who to interview for our space, I was, I was emailing with Jonathan Adelstein. And I said, who do you think is like the best person I should interview on the tower side? Like who's got like the best history? I'm like, I think it's, I think it's Jeff, but who, he's like, he's like, hands down. It's Jeff. You got, you got, if you're going to do this, you got to go to Jeff. Nice of Jonathan to say. Across the tower space, we've, we've seen a lot of CFOs become CEOs. Um, why do you think that is? Candidly, it's, it's a financial business more than it is any other type of business. There's not a lot of, um, um, and I don't mean to demean us or, or my peers, all of whom I, I respect, but there's not a lot of um, invention. It's not like we're finding the, you know, the cure for COVID or things like that. We, we're basically a financial engine that needs to execute well. And because of all the heavy financing and, and that aspect of the business and the need for that to be a success in this business, I think it's just more natural than, you know, other parts of the organization that typically would give rise to, you know, the next CEO. You know, in the car business, it could be sales. In um, the drug business, it could be your chief scientist. But Great point. that's, that's the, just the way our industry works and the things that are really important. Um, I think it's, of all the different disciples, it's probably most logical to come up through the finance side. Really great point. Um, how would you describe your management style? I'm, I'm active. Some days my guys and gals would say I'm annoying, but um, you know, I think you gotta, you gotta keep your hand, you, you have to hire good people, let them do their job, but you have to stay abreast of what is going on. Cause there's a certain rhythm and cadence to our business and an organization that if, I, I believe, if you're not touching and active, um, I, I just don't think you're going to be as good a leader. That's a good point. Uh, give them enough rope to hang themselves, if you will, to, to you know, be successful and have their own impact on the organization, but at the same time, be mindful of what's going on so that it's never yeah. far out of I us. mean, there will, be, there will be times where my direct reports, and I might not talk for a week, but if there's an important matter, we'll be talking twice a day. You also had to contend with the telecom bust in 2001 and in 2002. And I believe at the time, SBA was levered close to 15 times. It's funny, we, we joke about your seven to eight times these days. Uh, and still wasn't really a tower owner, as you mentioned, as much as a service provider. Um, you said that one of the company's proudest moments 
was not having to declare bankruptcy during this time. How close was SBA to being forced to declare bankruptcy and, and, and why was that? What was going on? We were very close. We had two private equity firms, distressed investors, who had purchased up a blocking position in our high yield bonds, which means that they controlled, you know, 66%. So nothing was going to get done without their consent. And they, and what, they wanted to own SBA because they had seen what had happened with uh, Pinnacle and what had happened with Spectrosite. So they were on that path and we were not sure there was another path. But as it turned out, we did pursue another path in parallel. And we actually had two parallel tracks going. One was a chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, path. And, but the other path was to sell just enough towers that would allow us to stabilize the, the fulcrum issue in our debt structure, which was a senior credit piece above in seniority, the high yield. And it, um, it was basically a, a, a non-monetary default. But at that time in the world, the, le this, the lending community to telecom went crazy. I mean, historically, they'd never taken a loss. And then all of a sudden, you couldn't get a relationship guy on the phone. You were sent directly to the workout group. So what we basically had to do was sell enough towers. And we just, because towers are a unique business model that stand on their own, we could approach it geographically. So we started at the Pacific Ocean because we weren't as dense out west as we were out east and just started coming east and basically got to the Mississippi River, sold 800 some odd towers, used that to pay off the debt piece that was the issue. We refinanced with GE Capital at the time for LIBOR plus 750, which um, <laughs> at that time looked pretty good. And we slowly got our way out of it. And the, and the debt guys, um, they didn't get what they wanted because they wanted to own SBA. But of course, you know, they bought that debt at 30, 40, 50 cents on the dollar and ended up getting paid out at par. So they, nobody's crying for them. But, but deep down, what was the most, the, pr the proud part of that, Colby, was as we were approaching the chapter 11 um, side of things, you know, we had all the advisors, we had Wall Street firms and banks and, they, they, they kept approaching it as like a clinical procedure. Like, yeah. okay, you, you, you just declare this and then you come out the other side and, and everything's okay. And, you know, look at Spectrosite, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? You're talking bankruptcy, right? This is not, this is not a word that I grew up thinking anything good could be attached to. Yeah. And of course, in reality, there's not a lot of good. Uh, attached to a chapter 11 because your shareholders get wiped out. Steve, Steve would have gotten wiped out. That's exactly my next statement. Steve would have been wiped out. And, you know, I got all these guys whispering in my ear that, oh, well, we'll restake you, Stoops, and, you know, the management team. Well, you know, first of all, you're not developing the most warm and fuzzy feeling with the distressed debt investors as your future bosses. Um, and then you know that the rest of the shareholders, including Steve Bernstein, who I would not be where I am today without him, he would have been wiped out. So this was something that I was just in my core resistant to, and it gave us um, 
I think, enough impetus to truly pursue that parallel sale path to successful completion. But again, that, that was a bit of a lucky break too, because it was just around the time that we were um, able to accomplish that, that the financial markets started to loosen up and things started to look better. And had, had there been kind of a total lid on financing for our industry that had lasted another six months, we would not be here today. Wow. These stories are just always so fascinating to me because, you know, for an analyst or for people picking up your business now, you know, we think of it maybe going back a few years at most. Uh, but we certainly don't think of it back in, in, in 2001, 2002. And it's just amazing, the, the story there. Well, um, and there's, the, there's a big part of our culture that is in that story. I mean, we fought for our lives. We did it. We're extremely tight as a group. We're proud of who we are, proud of what we've accomplished. And, you know, a lot of it has been molded by those experiences. So when SBA went public in July of 1999, you know, we talked about the power industry and, and what the feeling was. And you talked about, you know, 1996 Telecom Act being big as it relates to enabling the tower industry to be what it, what it ultimately became. But what was the investor's understanding of the tower business back when you went public? How did, how did investors, how did sell-side analysts, how did the buy-siders think of towers back when you went public? Uh, very different uh, than today. And, and, and at that time, you know, unfortunately, erroneously. And it, and it caused us a problem. We had a tough time going public. We, we had to stay on the road an extra week. We ended up reducing our, our price at which we were, we were selling. We actually had a bunch of selling shareholders start the process. Those got taken out so that it was just a, a primary issuance. But then to actually get the deal done, those selling shareholders, our private equity and Steve, frankly, had to buy into the IPO to get it done. Uh, now it's turned out to be a pretty good investment for them, but um, at that, it, it was not easy. And, and two reasons, um, we hit a soft patch in the market, but investors didn't really understand the tower industry and what makes it tick and what makes it a success. See, we followed American Tower and Crown and they were both bigger. And, um, in the investment community took a somewhat of a Walmart-like approach to their view of the world. It's like, well, let's see, you've already got two companies out there that are, are bigger. Um, why, why do we need you? Um, they did not appreciate the exclusive real estate uh, nature of the business. The fact that, you know, a company of any size with scale with unique assets is going to have the possibility of doing well. They basically viewed it as a, as a, you know, if only the only the big survive, and we weren't we weren't the biggest, we were, and we were not going to be the biggest, um, so that was a, a bit of a stumbling block. Yeah, I mean, for the first few years uh, as an industry in the public markets, uh, it was difficult. You mentioned Pinnacle, which which ultimately turned into Global Signal. Uh, and then you mentioned Spectrosite, and, and both of those companies ended up declaring bankruptcy, uh, which obviously didn't, you know, look well for the space uh, that you had that happen. And to your point, there was five of you, uh, and it was probably hard, you know, ultimately for, for people to, to differentiate, particularly just knowing the nuance uh, of, of the space itself. But that obviously started to change. 
Yeah. Go ahead, Jack. Well, there, there were no, remember, we, and we were still struggling to find our home on the, um, on the sell side um, in the analyst community. I mean, we had radio guys covering us. We had, there were no REIT people covering us at that time. I mean, we slowly morphed into um, now a, a position where, you know, wireless carriers and towers are generally covered by the same people, which is, I mean, obviously they're different businesses, but because they're so inextricably tied together, that's, that's, that's a good thing. Um, but it took a while for people to figure out how best to think about us. And it's, and it's ultimately we're, we're specialized real estate. When, when does that change though? When, when does it become a more positive situation? Is it when American Tower became a REIT? Was it, was it, you know, during 2012, 13, when we saw just this fantastic growth as a result of 4G LTE? I mean, when do you start to feel like, you know, we're finally getting our just dues? Yeah, I think it probably took five to 10 years after we all went public. And it's just, I mean, it's like anything else in life. You gotta, you gotta fight and prove yourself. And what um, I think the investment community realized is these are good businesses. We have good macro conditions um, uh, that will keep us good businesses as long as we continue to execute well. And they bear close watching but it was only, it wasn't right away. It had, to, it took five to 10 years. And this is part of the fun too, because we got to shape all this as an industry. And I really feel fortunate that, you know, conversations with folks like you, I, I, I really helped and played a part in getting the investment community to understand what to focus on and what was important and what was not important. And, and we've gotten there. We, we, I think the industry is extremely well known now. Um, I think it is, it's mature in its identity. It's not mature in its um, future. Um, so much growth and so many different things to do. But I think we, we all have a pretty good sense of who and what we are now, as do our investors. That's interesting. My, my next question was going to be, do you think it's fair to call the U.S. tower industry mature at this point? And, and you would say that in terms of understanding the model, yes. But in terms of the opportunity, no. Can you kind of just give us a little bit more color on that? Well, I, I think I think the world has a long way to go in terms of its its digital infrastructure and architecture. We have a long way to to go to participate in that as an industry. You know, there'll be adjacencies which we'll be exploring. I mean, none of us in the U.S. are much into the active electronics side of the of the business. Um, many wireless carriers around the world would like someone to do that. Um, so th there's all kinds of different possibilities, but, but deep down now, it, it's clear that we are communications infrastructure. And, you know, as to where we, where we belong now in, in a research group or who gets coverage or what, is this more like, you know, radio or is it more like wireless carriers or is it more like real estate? You know, I, I think those basic fundamental questions of, of who and what we are, those have been answered. Okay. So a, a common statement, I think, amongst investors uh, that we speak to is that the power business is the best business in the world. 
the downside to that statement is it makes it hard to want to do anything else. Um, with that in mind, do you feel SBA and other tower companies will have the luxury to just be a tower operator? Or do you think that over time, the market will force you to expand and augment your model and strategy? Well, we're always, we're always pushed for growth. You know, we've had a pretty unbelievable 20 year run, but that's not what any new investor wants to talk about is the last 20 years. They want to talk about the next 20 years. So we have to continue to find ways to grow. And we have focused on, because we've been much more, I think, narrowly focused than some others. Um, I think it's fair for folks to understand why it's because we've been focused on return on invested capital. Um, you, you can move a lot of the different levers that people look at by, by growing in certain ways and areas, but if it's not, um, you know, long-term and a good return on invested capital, um, for us at least, it's been something that we've generally shied away from. So the market needs to be careful to not press for top-line growth at the expense of return on invested capital. That would be, I guess, my hope for our futures. Okay. And I guess to that point, you mentioned that there, you don't think of the U.S. tower industry as mature in terms of future growth opportunity. Therefore, is the presumption then that you could continue just on the tower side? Or you mentioned as an example, you know, carrier interest perhaps in, you know, the, the, the electronics uh, aspect of, of the management of their of their networks, um, the lit portion, if you will, uh, you know, how, how do you kind of parse those things apart? Well, you know, we want to find things that will have a good return on invested capital where, where it's a capital intensive endeavor, which is kind of what we are as a business. Um, you know, we're infrastructure owners. So the things that we can do that make sense, um, that fit that goal, I, I think we will explore, um, which will take us outside the traditional focus of just macro towers. I mean, a good example of that is the, um, the mobile edge computing side and the fact that we bought two data centers to help facilitate that. Now, I don't know that I can justify growing a standalone data center business that's otherwise unconnected with the rest of our business inside SBA, just because, you know, I have the capital to do that. Um, but what I do think I'm very much justified and, and, and our shareholders want us to do is find ways to tie those two worlds together in a way that makes sense for a tower company, which is why, you know, the mobile edge computing and actually getting the presences at our cell sites, where obviously we're the best to, um, to capitalize on that, um, does make so much sense. So those are the kind of things that you will see us continue to pursue. Um, plus, plus, macro, plus, obviously, the right uh, macro tower opportunities to either build or, or buy. To your point on data centers, uh, you've gone and acquired two data centers, as you mentioned. Do you think at some point a data center business at scale uh, and a tower business at scale belong together? Not necessarily SBA, maybe you're not the first one to do it, but do you think that that's kind of where the space will ultimately go? 
You know, I, I think you could, because from an operational and a capital um, allocation and a financing perspective, um, you definitely have the basic tools to do both. The real question is, does if you're talking about a public company, does does the public world um, allow it? Because right, yeah. there is, as you know better than I, there has been um, a, a focus, and you have activists who will come out and preach, you know, uh, hyper focus in your business, and you know, hive off this or do that. Um, you know, the, the days of the truly multi-business conglomerate that are in somewhat disparate businesses, but just happen to succeed because they're great managers and great financiers, you don't, you don't see that a lot anymore because the public markets have forced those to be broken up. So you, you're going to have to balance all that stuff. But, but deep down, um, you know, I think the data center is a good business. Um, and I'm going to connect it to our towers in a way that um, everybody says this is the right thing to do. So keep going. Um, really interesting and, and really great point you bring up about um, being a public company and having to appreciate not just fundamentally if it makes sense or not, but would the market actually award you for that? Um, right. Something to think about. Yeah. My last question before we go into what I refer to as the lightning round, but I feel like you've been dismissive of the small cell model uh, and some of the public comments to which you've made. Is that because you think the financial model isn't attractive or because you believe there will be a limited need for small cells provided by third-party providers? Clearly the former. I think there's going to be a ton of small cells. Um, I just think it is um, for us a less attractive opportunity based on my return on invested capital comments that I made earlier. But there's going to be a ton of them. There's no doubt. But if you grow your top line, or do you grow your return on invested capital? We're gonna to go to the lightning round. So I have three questions. Uh, they're a bit more lighthearted and we're asking for, for a short response, no more than 30 seconds. But why have there been so many tower companies based in Florida? They all wanna be around us and wanna be like us. <laughs> it's amazing though. I mean, you got, got Colony down there uh, today. We have, we have you guys, uh, you have Tarpoon. You know, you, you got a, a few others, I think, as, as, as well. It's just, you, you do. It's a, it's, a, it's a good place to live. Um, unfortunately, that secret's out now. Um, there's pretty crowded down here. But, you know, American Tower, um, Jimmy Eisenstein, good friend of mine, um, he was based down here. And he, he spent a lot of his uh, early time with Steve Dodge, you know, still with his Florida roots. And one of, one of the big assets that they had were some towers in Florida. Um, you know, Mark's grown up around, around these parts uh, for a while. And then a couple of folks, you know, you had Phoenix Tower, they're kind of a spinoff of, of the old, um, uh, whatever it was before Vertical Bridge. Um, so it, it it's just, uh, it, it kind of is one of those things that has just happened. Um, but there, 
it's nice to be able to see each other and talk and meet and um and there is some cross you know fertilization and pollinization of the companies but it's just one of those things all right next question uh will you be attending our communications infrastructure in the summer in boulder will there be one physically i think that there will we're going to make a call in mid-may whether or not we go in that direction but we've been doing all of our invites in the last two weeks or so. And I've been pleasantly surprised with the amount of people who are saying, I hope it's in person. I've already been vaccinated. I expect to be vaccinated. I feel I'll be comfortable going and I'm crossing my fingers that it is. So we're leaning like it's going to be, but we'll make the official call sometime in mid-May. Well, uh, I will participate and I hope I can do it in person. Okay. And then as a Seminoles booster, how do you feel about the upcoming collegiate football season? We're going to be better this year than we were last year. I don't know that we will win the ACC this year. We still have a, um, uh, a, a bit of a multi-year healing and, and restoration process going. But I will tell you that uh, Coach Norvell, our new hire from Memphis, he is a unbelievable, charismatic, motivational, real deal guy who took that program where frankly, I don't know that he had his access to the same level of recruiting talent that he will have here in Florida. And, you know, he took it to the top of, of their conference. So very, very optimistic for years, uh, for the years ahead. Spoken like a true optimist. <laughs> or, uh, real, or a true seminal. That, that, Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed the time with you. And I look forward to uh, speaking with you again soon, I'm sure. Colby, I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.